The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit playing with your Klingon battle sword and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 219 with guest Sean Walker, recorded live Tuesday, February 27th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniuk on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who conveniently caught a cold to get out of writing this week's jokes, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back. It's another great week here in .NET Roxland. Yes, it is. It's the second week of our two-show-a-week plan. And where are we right now? We are at the MVP Summit in you know, Redmond. The MVP Global Summit is kind of a funny thing. I was just talking to Lawrence Ryan about this. He, he was like, what's that all about? And, well, it's basically a party. It, it really is. And uh, and funny, Tim Huckabee, who's not there, but I'd, see, I'd seen the previous week, sends five of his MVPs up, and he said, what are they going to learn? You can't deny an MVP at Summit. You've uh, got to be there. I mean, it's a perk. It's it's one of the things about being an MVP that y you go, you hobnob, you see Steve Ballmer or Bill Gates deliver a speech, and and you have fun, and you know there's a lot of parties and a lot of schmoozing and networking, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, and there's about three thousand MVPs worldwide, and about a thousand of them come to the summit. It's kind of fun. Well, anyway, I uh, hope we have a good time when we're there. Right I'm sure now. we will. Okay, good. But we're there right now. Yes, we are. Okay, are we? Are you having a good time? I love radio. <laughs> Don't try and confuse me. You're just confusing the listeners. Hey, we got an email from David Christensen, who's one of the Pwop ambassadors. And if you don't know what they are, you can go to uh, pwop.com slash ambassadors.aspx. And uh, these guys help us out with BitTorrent. What they do is they have all agreed to seed... All the POP shows, I mean all of them, not just the .NET ones, but all of them. And so they get published to the ambassadors' feeds first. They have special feeds. And so that when we actually publish the show, by that time there's a good 20 or so full seeds in the BitTorrent feed. It just helps everybody get their files a lot quicker. 
And uh, David Christensen uh, had a baby, and he told yes. us to, he told us to uh, told us all about it. Yeah, this is his first one, baby boy. Yeah, name is Ryan. Yeah, seven Eleven. pounds, twelve ounces. I see eleven pound. Yeah, he got that wrong. He was a little confused. You know, when you've had your first child, you get a little stupid. Okay. Yeah, it's a seven pound. <laughs> That's it. Seven pound. Yeah, born at eleven. There you go. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but David and Jillian did their honeymoon in Vancouver. Well, yeah, I knew that uh, that they had come over to see you. Well, they didn't, didn't really come over to see me. They came over for their honeymoon. Well, I, didn't, I mean, come over, they came to your house, didn't they? I actually had them over and had a little visit and so forth. You know, you don't want to hang around with people that are on their honeymoon. That's true. Because they've got better things to do than visit with you. It's true. They, they actually rented an RV and went out in through the wilderness of British Columbia. Apparently had a great time. Yeah. Let's and- go to Richard's house. Oh, my God. Nag, nag, nag. That's all you do. <laughs> you don't love me anymore. Now, Jillian is one of the more sane wives I've ever met. So, a uh, big shout out to Jillian. Congratulations. Oh, I was imitating David, actually. <laughs> I see. <laughs> All right. So, you got you got something else on I your plate do, there? I do have an email here, and it says, Hello, I've become a big fan of your podcast, .NET Rocks. I found it on a link in the MSDN library, and I've been listening to the past 80 shows over the past couple of months. Wow. Which is very fast. Yeah. Because you explained what code camps are and encouraged people to go to them, I went to the South Florida Code Camp. It was stellar. Stella. Yes. Complete with excellent sessions, a ton of information, and many friendly people. Microsoft MVPs, food, and giveaways. I wouldn't have known about it without DNR and will continue to listen to your shows and watch DNR TV. Hmm. Also, if the wife agrees, always a challenge, another DNR quote, I will be attending the Orlando Code Camp, where I'd love to meet Richard and see his T-SQL querying and technique session and take my querying to the next level. Yeah, so that brings up the announcement about us going to the Orlando Code Camp. It does kind of nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, right before Dev Connections. is going to be on Saturday, March 24th, and uh, I'm doing a keynote, which is going to be fun. It's just a fun keynote, you know, and... I can't really explain it on a radio show. No, no, because it's it's a, it's a presentation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm doing my famous T SQL tips and techniques session, which I've done in a lot of places. Uh, of course, we owed Orlando, didn't we? Yeah, we did because when the hurricane came, when we were on the road trip, we sort of missed them. Yeah, so we had to we picked this up. So we're going to yeah. go down and we're going to do the co camp, and have a good time. And that email was from we're washing away a stain. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> That's a very bad Marlon Brando. I'm sorry. Oh. And that email was from Chris Cato. Yeah, Chris Cato. Yeah, down in Florida. Yep. So hopefully we'll see him there. And uh, just to keep people up on the regular stuff here, uh, Greg Brill down in Infusion, New York City, is still still looking for uh, great developers to go to New York for a year, take the tour, the New York City tour, live uh, rent-free in Manhattan for a year. Have a nice salary and hang out with Greg. I mean, the, the guys down there, they it, it's a fun place to work. I went down. I checked it out. Uh, you can read all about it in uh, at shrinkster.com slash KH6. That's an ongoing thing. And uh, there's also an opportunity down in Washington, D.C., as we've uh, mentioned on the show a couple of times. If you're an ASP.NET guru and you want to change a pace, there's uh, some some work happening down there. It's a competitive salary, benefits, and even equity in the company. 
Uh, you got to be an ASP.net freak, you know? Got to be a head. Got to be serious about ASP.net. Serious about ASP.net. And uh, got to be a developer, not just a programmer. And uh, if you live in the D.C. area, give it a Give it a try, and if you live near D.C., maybe you could relocate. So uh, if you're interested in that opportunity, contact us at .net rocks at franklins.net. All right, Richard. Well, let's bring on our guest. Uh, guest has been on the show before, Sean Walker, uh, the .net nuke guy, as he's affectionately called in the industry. He's CEO of .net nuke Corporation. Sean has 15 years of professional experience in architecting and implementing large-scale software solutions for private and public organizations. Sean is the original creator and maintainer of .net nuke a web application framework for ASP.NET, which has spawned the largest and most successful open-source community project on the Microsoft platform. Based on his significant community contributions, he was recognized as a Microsoft MVP in 2004 and an ASP Insider in 2005. He is a frequent speaker at user groups in his local area and is a contributing author to the Rocks press book Professional.NET Nuke 4, Open Source Web Application Framework. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show, Carl. And Richard. Welcome back. Now, I'm looking at this bio, and I'm looking at the last show's bio, which was literally two years ago, and a lot of things have changed. Yeah, you're you're now the head of .NET Nuke Corporation. That's new. Yeah, so back in September of 2006, um, .NET Nuke Corporation was formed. And really, up until that point, the .NET Nuke project had been managed by my own sort of personal consulting company, Perpetual Motion Interactive Systems, which was a, a Canadian um, corporation based in um, British Columbia. But it was never really intended to manage a project of this size. And at, you know, at some at one point in time um, or another, m- many different issues sort of came to light in terms of the legal structure of the uh, of the organization managing it and felt it was a better um, future for the project to create its own corporation, a U.S.-based corporation, which is um, based in Seattle, Washington, and actually brought on three um, longtime .NET New Core team members as co-founders um, to uh, move forward with, with that endeavor. That's really cool. You know, for the folks who've never uh, looked at .NET Nuke before, maybe you could give us a little recap of the history. Sure. Because it started as a, as a Microsoft product, right? Right. So it, was a, it started as a, a sample application that Microsoft released in the very early days of the .NET framework. I think it was the .NET 1.0 beta. Um, and from that sample application, that's, I downloaded it and I started making modifications to it. I got exposed to a community that it had just begun on the uh, www.asp.net website uh, in the discussion forums surrounding this application. And so there was a lot of people doing things with the sample application, sharing code snippets, but there wasn't somebody who was consolidating those into sort of one living, breathing code base. And after about a year of sort of dabbling with that, I decided that it would be a good idea to release the product that I had as an open source product and then start um, consolidating some of the community changes into it. And so I did that uh, actually December 24th, so Christmas Eve 2002. Wow. And it was just a sort of an announcement in that forum saying, Merry Christmas, ho, 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 free download of, uh, of, of that particular application. And at that time, Microsoft really hadn't grasped the whole open source thing yet. Yeah, so there really wasn't a whole lot of things going on in the open source space 
on the Microsoft platform at that time. So um, there was a lot of people who got involved early on because maybe they had some experience with open source projects on other platforms, and but you know their primary technology platform was a Microsoft platform. Um, made some great friendships in those early stages, and some of the people that were involved are still involved with the project, you know, four or five years later. So yeah, it's incredible. And let's talk numbers. How many .NET Nuke websites are there out there? <laughs> That's pretty hard to gauge, actually. We um, we require people to register on on the .netnuke.com website when they come to download the code, and. As of today, I believe we're going to go over four hundred thousand registered 400, users. Four hundred thousand. Yeah, but four—that's not actually an accurate measure of the number of sites that are out there. I mean, people will come to the site and download the code and use it for internal sites, which, which, um, or, or use it for multiple websites. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different usage scenarios, and so we we don't really know how many sites are out there. Um, we yeah. use SourceForge.net for hosting our downloads, and we're getting close to 150,000 downloads of um, software each month at this point. Wow. So um, I know we've said this before on the show, but give me some of your um, most well-known users. Who are some of the Um, websites that are using this that we know? Okay. So, I mean, in terms of um, showcase sites that we have, on our like listed on our site. So the .netnuke.com site has a number of different showcase sites um, in all different categories. Um, one of the largest showcase sites, or one of the most high traffic showcase sites, would be the National Rugby League in Australia. So nrl.com.au, uh, ah, and they've cool. been running the .netnuke framework for uh, I think six to twelve months, and that's a, a very highly trafficked site. Um, an even more highly trafficked site that's soon to be released, if it hasn't been already, is the Australian Rules Football League in Australia, which is a, a massive site. I think it's you know got 20 to 30 web servers um, handling the load there, and they're running .NET Nuke 4.0 as well. And that's the whole league is going to run that. That's right, including that's the, cool. so the league and all the team sites as well. And then there's those that you wish didn't run it, like truelawyers.com. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it can be used for so many different things. I'm just that, kidding. Um, I mean, we're, we're happy to see any of these different implementations come to light. This is a huge list. Um, of the Humane Society of Utah, NYSE Data, the stock market, the New York Stock yeah. Exchange. New York Stock Exchange. The New York yeah. Stock Exchange's e-commerce portal. Yep. For that, it's one aspect of it. And there's um, city of Snoqualmie, city of Denver. I mean, so a lot of um, municipal government sites uh, wow. in the United States and also abroad. I think there's quite a number of um, government implementations in Australia, uh, many in different European countries as well. Yeah. And did I read this right? The fifth most popular downloaded product on SourceForge. Yeah, wow. for at least recently, at least in the last couple months. Hmm. We've been consistently in the top 10, I think, for the last year. And in the last couple months, we've moved up to, you know, number five, which is pretty amazing considering it's probably 120,000 open source projects on SourceForge, and we're in the top 10, or in the top five now. Okay, so now for the people who know what you're all about, what are some of the uh, the newest features in .NET Nuke? So, I mean, it's been quite a while since I've been on the show, 
since uh, 2005, early 2005, actually. And at that point, the big announcement was Nuke 3.0. <laughs> right, right. Now we're at a 4.4.1, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, we've had quite a number of releases since then. We tend to do um, one release every three months, usually, um, at least major releases, and then we have stabilization releases in between um, those milestones. But um, some of the major features that we've added in the last uh, release, uh, in uh, 2006 we added um, replacement providers for the membership roles and profile providers, um, which are provided with ASP.NET 2. Um, We added replacements for those to accommodate a different set of use case requirements that the community had expressed to us um, over, you know, we had been using the the vanilla uh, providers that were provided by Microsoft, and there were some limitations in those providers, so we created some more advanced versions of those. Um, wow. Uh, the latter portion of 2006 was spent optimizing the application for performance and scalability. Um, and the impetus for that was uh, applications being used in many shared hosting environments, which is a, a very um, challenging environment to, uh, for a web application to, to run in. You'll have you know, hundreds or thousands of uh, applications running on one server. I know this is true because... Um, if you install, at least you used to be this way, and tell me if it's different, if you install .NET Nuke on a box, it sort of takes over the default error page. So if you are if you don't have a handled error on any of the websites that are on that box, you'll get a .NET Nuke configuration error page. Is that, um, that, uh, that would be true for a single account. For a single account. Not for a box, not okay. for an entire box. I see. Right? It dep- I mean, I guess it depends on how you would have the machine configured. But yeah. uh, normally in, in hosted environments, you know, everything is quite well partitioned. That's good. So each user account is partitioned. And uh, so, you know, the, installing .NET Nuke in one account is not going to affect any of the other accounts on that box. But, um, I mean... How many ISPs are running the product now? Um, probably, probably 50 or 60. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, that ranges from, well, it could be even more than that, actually, because there's many ISPs that provide Windows hosting, which allow their customers to install any application that they want. Right. So in those cases, people could upload .NET Nuke on their own. But there are quite a number of hosting providers that actually have a very seamless integrated install for .NET Nuke, where the customer goes to their site and wants to purchase a hosting account. They can just click a checkbox saying that they want .NET Nuke installed and it installs it for them automatically. Hey, have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps as well, but unfortunately it's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. Of course, there's WPF, but that's a different story. But wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, gradients, and that kind of stuff in classic Windows Forms? Yeah, Windows Forms which you're all using today. How cool would your applications be then? Well, you can see for yourself. Go ahead and download Telerik RAD Controls Suite for Windows Forms, the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Play with a visual style builder and enjoy interactive design time support, which eliminates the need to write a lot of code. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are you could do it. So where's the catch? Probably performance hit, right? 
Well, not really. The underlying framework is highly optimized to reduce repainting and layout rearrangement. But again, it's best to see for yourself. Why not visit Telerik at www.telerik.com and tell them Carl sent you. This is a uh, it's pretty in- incredible. You know, I, I'm I'm trying to think of um, the similar products that are out there, and I guess you know the first thing that pops into my mind is SharePoint. What's um, uh, what's the what's the difference, and why am I even thinking of the, these two things in the same? Vein. Well, maybe um, the newer version of SharePoint would have more similarities. Um, in sh- the previous uh, versions of SharePoint, it was really designed as a collaboration uh, yeah. piece of software, which was mostly used in intranet scenarios, whereas .NET Nuke was primarily used in an extranet or internet scenario. So the use cases were quite different, um, at least in previous versions of SharePoint. The new version of SharePoint, uh, SharePoint 2007, um, has more similarities. It's been uh, more optimized for use in extranets and intranet or internet scenarios as well. Um, but I still think there's you know some fundamental differences in the way that the products manage content and manage assets and the uh, extensibility model. Yeah, that extensibility model is. I mean, it, it just extensibility in general. I mean, if you think about the the market forces that have produced all of these .NET Nuke modules. And there are tons of .NET Nuke modules. And I was just looking at uh, Telerik's website, who's, uh, you know, the major sponsor of .NET Rocks. And I'm looking through the products, and I see RAD controls for .NET Nuke. Yeah, Telerik was a very early sponsor of the .NET Nuke project. Um, They saw the benefit of it quite early and came aboard as a platinum sponsor and created wrappers for many of their um, professional controls. And, wow. and obviously, they sell them to um, to users of the .NET Nuke framework. Yeah, now that's that's new. I mean, that's a major major vendor that's uh, that's caught on caught on to it. You know, mostly what you see is you know smaller vendors that come up with modules and then they sell them. And there's hundreds of these vendors, right? Yeah. So the commercial ecosystem that's grown up around the product is. In two areas today, um, there's the extensibility model is there for skinning the application. So there's many designers that are creating custom skins that people can purchase and then just apply to their .NET Nuke site to get a whole new look and feel. And then on the other side, there's the um, extensibility of, of managing content or you know, different types of data. And so those are modules. And so the extensibility model there allows people to build what we call modules, which would be similar to web parts in SharePoint, and offer them for sale, and then people can install those into their .NET Nuke application at runtime and get extra functionality. Uh, we believe that uh, the size of that market today is probably about $2 million in, in gross sales of um, extensions for the .NET Nuke platform, and expect that to grow by probably 10 times over the next five years. Wow. So there's a significant, you know, uh, business opportunity there. I mean, I, I look at all of the huge number of developers that are out there creating internationally, creating components for the ASP.NET platform. And in a lot of cases, they're just, you know, tiny islands in this vast ocean, right, of competitive offerings. Right. And the one thing that's really cool about .NET Nuke is, you know, by participating in the ecosystem, it gives these developers a direct marketing channel for, for their products. So it gives them a way to, to reach consumers with, with their products. Um, because we 
we build a lot of integration between the .NET Nuke framework and the .NET Nuke uh, marketplace. So it, it gives um, developers the opportunity to sell their products to a larger audience and not focus so much on, you know, that very expensive marketing or traditional marketing campaigns that, that are required. I mean, what, one great success story there is a, a company called Falafel Software. I mean, they had an, a calendaring, a scheduling component for ASP.NET, and they were, I think, having limited success in selling it to the general ASP.NET market, but then they wrapped it as a .NET new control, and sales were, were incredible for that particular component. So, I mean, it, it shows that that model can work. So the looking at the resource directory on .nuke.com, which is, I guess, where all of the, all or some of the third-party components are listed. Is it some or, or is this it? Well, we, yeah, the resource directory is actually a, a different um, directory. We actually have okay. a benefactor program for .nuke, which allows community members to help support the project financially. And at the uh, gold and platinum levels of the benefactor program, Vendors and organizations can get visibility um, through the resource directory for their products and services. I so see. that really, that's only that that represents a small portion of the total number of organizations that are using the product. These are the ones that are committed financially. That's right. We actually have marketplace.netnuke.com, which is a reseller um, site, separate okay. reseller site where vendors can list their products for sale, Marketplace. And consumers can. Purchase them, yeah, marketplace.netnuke.com. So I'm looking at the SDN store in the .NET Nuke marketplace, and I'm looking at the categories. So I'm trying to get an idea of how many components are out there. I don't see a list because there's probably too many of them. Yeah, and those are only commercial components. On the .NET Nuke.com website, there is a um, resource directory in there, which is separate from the other resource directory. Modules for .NET Nuke, is that the yes, quick link? that's right. Okay. So I'll go there. Oh, my goodness. That's the list that you're looking for. So there's about 180 different modules? There's yeah. 18 pages at about 10 per page, right? Yeah. And I don't know uh, lately if we've been able to keep up with the number of submissions that are coming in. It seems that the number of modules that are being created is exceeding the amount that we can we can handle, at least in terms of listing them. So. <laughs> yeah, and 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 sixty or so of these are marked as free. That's right. Yeah. So there is. I mean, because it is an open source project, it's important to realize that you know there's people that are offering modules for download for free under an open source license, as well as uh, companies that are offering modules for sale under commercial license. So the framework mm -hmm. itself is always free, but the modules you can pay for are not, as the case may be. That's right. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. So the, the marketplace was launched in, uh, I think, November of 2006. And we had specific goals in mind that we wanted to promote through the marketplace. One of those was improving the level of quality of modules in the ecosystem. Um, because, I mean, the, the, um, there's a broad range of, of quality in, in terms of modules. Anybody from hobbyist web developers creating modules in their spare time to real serious professional organizations creating you know, enterprise-level modules. 
Um, but there was no sort of third party who was, you know, evaluating them for, for quality standards. Right. So one of the programs that the .NET Corporation introduced um, along with the marketplace was a review program where vendors can submit their products for review, and we have a set of criteria that we uh, run those modules through, test them, and then a module can get uh, sort of a review certification to say that it's passed the review. Oh, right. Here it is. And, and uh, 50 modules have been reviewed and, I guess, certified. That's right. Very Microsoft-like that the, you, know, you can yeah. get your things approved. Well, it's important in terms of consumer confidence to be able to you know, purchase a module and feel that you're purchasing something that has a lot of value to it and is high quality. Um, so that was one of the reasons for the review program. There's a lot of education, too, that happens. Um, there's a lot of, although there is a lot of documentation that's available for .NET Nuke, uh, it seems to be you know, scattered and spread out. And, and for uh, module developers, it's really great to be able to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with them and educate them on some of the specific criteria that they should be including with their modules. I would think this would be a good application for some Camtasia videos. Absolutely. Yeah. Videos... We, we do have some videos available on the site, but we could certainly use a lot more uh, videos. Videos are a great way of, of training developers. Yeah. What's, uh, what's coming up in the next release that people should be excited about? So in mid-March, um, I guess during the uh, Microsoft Global Summit, the MVP Summit, there will be a, another, a new public release of .NET Nuke 4.5.0. And in this release, uh, couple major features. Um, we've added a new web-based install wizard. Uh, so one of the problems that we've seen in the general community is when people install .NET Nuke for the first time, I mean, we have limited configuration options available to them. And it, it, it's just a bit difficult for them to, you know, dig through config files in different places to figure out how to configure the application for their needs. So what we've noticed is that many of the uh, popular open source CMS products out there, uh, especially ones on, on non-Microsoft platform, have a web-based um, wizard that walks the user through a series of steps and allows them to configure a number of different runtime settings. So we've added a wizard to the, uh, to the .NET Nuke application, which uh, provides these, this functionality. So basically just helping you pick the first few modules out? What kind yeah, of key I mean, features you want turned on? Right, just like a just like a Windows-based installer where you've sure. got the option to install, you know, a full install or a custom install or, you know, a standard install. We've got different options for that. It allows you to um, enter your connection string information through the wizard, through a series of um, actual, you know, text boxes rather than having to mess around with actual connection strings. Updates your web.config for you allows you to pick from a list of optional modules, optional skins, optional language packs. I mean, so it steps you through various um, extensibility options you have so that you can arrive with it, you know, at the end with a custom, a custom deployment of the .NET Nuke application. And ultimately close to what the customer is going to want. That's right. If, if so not completely Rather than done. making decisions for the customer, it allows the, the customer, puts the customer in control. You know, I've, I have many friends who have made a lot of money with .NET Nuke setting up websites for companies and just the, not even big companies, just, you know, small businesses. 
That, right. Uh, I mean, website. for I mean, consulting can... companies, it's incredibly valuable tool to have in their arsenal. I mean, I would say it's irresponsible today for a consulting company to not leverage a framework. Absolutely. I mean, I mean it, you know, you can, you know, somebody says they give you a few ideas on the phone and in 15 minutes you say, all right, check this out. And you've got this boing, you know, all these great features. Right. It's just such a great tool. Right. So it provides all those basics, but then it also provides the ability to implement the custom functionality that the customer requires as well, because it has a great extensibility framework to it. I don't see any reason why you'd start with an empty IIS website anymore. There's just such good things here to get started with. Maybe the question to ask is, what doesn't .NET Nuke do? It's a good question. When, well, when is I mean, it yeah, things are constantly changing. So, I mean, one of the other things that we're adding support for in this next major release is um, ASP.NET AJAX. I mean, no, so no, I don't think you understood the question, Sean. <laughs> what doesn't it do? What doesn't it when do? When is today? it not appropriate? What kind of sites would I build that I shouldn't be building with .NET Nuke? Oh, that's a good question. And not one you normally have to answer. <laughs> right. Um, so, sure, I mean, not all websites are, are portals, and, you know, some websites are applications that are so customized in logic that... That, uh, that that this isn't appropriate. I mean, this is basically a portal, right? Well, it, it is, but it isn't. I mean, because we, we do have a significant number of people that are using it as just a framework as well. So rather than building their own, you know, membership roles, profile, you know, the, the basic underpinnings of any custom web application, why spend time doing that and why not leverage something that's already there? Well, so the, even if the... you're not using the portal aspect of it, the argument could be made, though, that that stuff exists in ASP.NET 2.0. Yeah, I guess if you could, if you can deal with sort of the limited implementation that's provided in ASP.NET 2.0, then then you could go that route. But okay, let's talk about that. Talk about the the, the limited uh, implementation in ASP.NET 2.0. Well, okay, okay. For example, I mean, we we do take advantage of the Microsoft membership provider because you know it does a great job of managing user passwords mm -hmm. and keeping them secure. And we, we like the reliability and, and the fact that Microsoft stands behind that particular component. Um, but in our particular case, Dynanuk supports multiple portals from one application install. And so we had to tweak it slightly so that, you know, you could have user accounts per portal. Um, on the roles provider, the... Uh, the solution that's offered in ASP.NET 2.0 is, is quite limited in, in terms of it only allows you to, you know, basically specify a role name, which you can then assign to users. Um, whereas what .NET Nuke allows you to do is define um, an effective date for the role, an expiry date for the role. Um, it allows you to define additional attributes like an avatar, which is associated to a role. Um, you can assign fees fee-based roles, so that pe premium roles, people can opt into a role where it's, um, you know, they have to pay a fee. I mean, all these different attributes that you can, um, that are already there and fully functional added on to our role system. So while ASP.NET gives you, you know, username and password kind of thing and log in stuff and log out, you take the whole idea of, of uh, personalities, roles, and just take that to the Yeah, because, I mean, through feedback from the community, I mean, there's constant re business requirements which come up. You know, I want to do this or I want to do that. 
with role management. And so over time, the number of features that have been added to .NET Nuke to accommodate those is, is quite significant and way far more significant than what's available in just standard ASP.NET 2.0. And similarly, in the profile area, I mean, people have the need to create a user profile for their users, but then later they want to add a new property. And for people that are, you know, users of technology and not necessarily developers, they don't want to be playing around with web.config files and having to learn XML. And they just want to say, I want to add a new property of a specific type. And they should be able to do that through the web application itself. And so .NET Nuke provides, sure. you know, those capabilities as well. That's the that's the best answer you could have given. I mean, you know, that this is the question that I've been asking you like every time that we've <laughs> we've met on the show, which is, you know, the Microsoft comes out with these new features and you guys have written your own sort of version of it before and how are you going to retrofit that in? Uh, you know, the, the answer that you just gave is, hey, we do it better. Yeah, but there's no doubt that Microsoft does provide significant value as well. I mean, the abstraction that we did for membership roles and profile was still heavily based on the work that Microsoft did in ASP.NET 2.0. I mean... Well, you're leveraging their technology, but, but extending you're it. not beholden to it. Yeah, you're extending it. Right. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms. Works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. I'm fascinated about the 4.4 release. You spent four months performance tuning a platform. I mean, that's got to be really tough. It's one thing to tune up a website, but you had to tune up your product in a way that everybody was going to benefit. Yeah, so there was a lot of work that went into that performance tuning release. I mean, if you consider that, we'd probably had, you know, probably 20 to 30 releases of the .NET Nuke product leading up to that point. And, and aside from, you know, small optimizations, there had never been a focused effort on performance as, you know, as just as one particular area of focus. Um, and so there was a lot of baggage leading up into that, that really, you know, you, you need to dig in. I'm just, I'm trying to understand what brought you to that point, that it was time to, to stop everything. I mean, you basically did a release with no new code, a release with no additional features. You're just going to performance tune. That's got to have been a heck of a tough decision to make. Yeah, it was. I mean, we, we were getting some feedback from hosters and from customers in regards to performance issues with the application. And you hear that enough, um, it starts tarnishing the reputation of the platform. And so at that point, you have to make the decision, you know, that perhaps, you know, <laughs> optimizing the whole application for performance is the best, you know, the most important um, task to... and, and just you need to ignore new features for a minute and focus on optimizing what you've got. Performance finally bubbled to the top of the stack. Right. 
And that was uh, largely driven by web hosters. So web hosters that were trying to leverage the .NET Nuke app um, in very challenging scenarios, you know, like installing hundreds and hundreds of .NET Nuke portals on one server because to try and maximize the density on that server. The hosting business is a very competitive business, and so they try to squeeze every last ounce out of their hardware. Of course. Right. So it means that the applications that are installed on, on that hardware need to to work well with the environment. I mean, it's, it was a very interesting process that we went through with the performance optimization, and I learned a lot. Um, actually, Microsoft was instrumental in that release in terms of providing us with resources. Um, they actually allowed one of our uh, lead developers um, to come down to Redmond for one whole week in the Microsoft lab with the Patterns and Practices group, and they provided us with one of their expert um, performance uh, testing resources to set up scripts and wow. put, put the application through its paces in their lab and then provided guidance on ways that we could optimize it. That's awesome. Yeah, so, so I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it's very interesting, actually, because, I mean, common, <laughs> the common perception when, you're, when you need to optimize a web application is, you know, if you've got a lot of out-of-process calls, like calls to a database where you need to get data, you know, the idea is that if you just cache that frequently requested data, that you'll get a performance boost. And, and it's true that you will. But then when you put that application in a very stressful um, environment, which has many other applications, memory becomes a very serious gating resource. And so if you're shoving everything into the cache, at some point you're going to blow the limits of the cache. Yeah. And so you have to be very careful about what you're putting in the cache. Otherwise, you're going to limit the number of applications that can be installed on a server. And that's, of course, the metric that the ISPs were going after you about is we need to get more instances of DNN into one machine. Right. So it's a real balancing act. I mean, you want to you get the maximum amount of performance by keeping things in process, but you don't want to stick so much in process that it blows the memory limits for that particular account. And, and bad, really bad things happen when you blow the memory limits in terms of the uh, IAS starts recycling the app constantly, which affects the whole box. And yep. So, I mean, it was, it was a very good exercise. And, and we focused on many different areas for performance tuning. Um, offloading some database calls was one. Um, making more efficient use of our cache was another because we had been caching redundant objects. So two versions of the same object sometimes were in the cache when they didn't need to be. Um, we went from storing array lists of, of collections in the cache to dictionaries, which allowed quicker lookups when we were retrieving things from the cache. Um, we enabled uh, gzip compression for the, uh, for the HTML output. Um, we enabled white space filtering to remove white space from the response. Wow. I mean, there was a whole ton of things that, that were done to improve the, uh, the performance. And, and the good thing is that when we actually rolled out 4.4, there was nothing but positive feedback from the community about those, those changes. Everybody like, immediately saw the performance improvement. So, I mean, it was measurable even, even from the naked eye. So... So it's not just the ISPs you please with that, being able to run a 1,000 instances, or I don't know, what was the number? What did you go to between 4.3 and 4.4 for an ISP? And, well, yeah, and it's funny, because performance and scalability 
um, tuning is so dependent on the actual environment. So it's dependent on the hardware that you're using, dependent on how you have the IIS configured. And there's a lot of different factors that play into it. Um, and so it, it's difficult to, to say, you know, what the actual improvement was. We think that we had, you know, a 50% improvement in response time and a 50% reduction in, in the memory footprint. Wow. Wow, that's significant. So, Big numbers. So, I mean, on one side, people could say that the application must have been pretty badly bloated before the optimization <laughs> occurred. But, I mean, how Easy many web applications say. do you know that aren't that way unless you actually sit down and focus on that problem? Right. Yeah, it's a different issue than building the feature. That's right. Sean, um, what is the license uh, of .NET Nuke? What's, is it a, I know it's an open source license, but which one are you using? Yeah, we're using the um, BSD open source license, which BSD um, MIT is also the same license. But um, it's, it's a license that really only requires that people keep the copyright notices in the source code. So all other types of use of the application are, are allowed under that license. Probably the most liberal open source license there is. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I mean, the the license decision um, actually had some um, input from from the folks at Microsoft in the early stages of the project. Um, in terms of you know, we we have a great working relationship with Microsoft, and I don't believe that would be the case if we had chosen a GPL license for the product. So and, when, fact, and for that matter, it wouldn't just be Microsoft that wouldn't, you know, be keen on working with us, but there's a lot of commercial organizations that wouldn't be able to use the .NET Nuke framework if it was a GPL product. So what if I build a website with .NET Nuke and I want to sell that entire website? There's no issue with that. Okay. So you could, you could do that. But what, I mean, what's the big issue with the GPL license? That impairs that sort of commercial ability. It's whatever you add or change, you have to give away. You have to give back, right? So it's uh, it's all about derivative products. So if right. you create a product that's based on a GPL product, the product that you create must also be licensed under the same license. And it must be as free. The original. So it it may it it ensures that that um, open source products remain open source indefinitely. That, that's the, the main point of the GPL, but that does limit its usage in some scenarios. So the scenario that I just said, you wouldn't be able to do that. You wouldn't be able to build a website, which is a derivative work of .NET Nuke, and then sell it. Well, are you saying build a website or build a web application? Well, it's the same thing, build a web application. Like, I wouldn't be able to build a web application, and somebody comes along and says, hmm, I want that website, software, box, everything. Right. Um, in the GPL world, the derivative product that you created would also have to be licensed under the GPL. So, yep. I mean, it would somebody could purchase it, but it would just have to be continue to be licensed under the GPL. They'd also have to give it away, in other yes. words, under the GPL, right? Right. I guess that's the real issue here is GPL is sort of viral. Everything it touches gets GPL'd as well. <laughs> I love how you used it as a verb there. <laughs> I, oh, my man, I've been GPL'd. My source code's showing everywhere. Hey, what are those spots on your arm? <laughs> oh, I got GPL'd. <laughs> uh, getting back to the, the performance tuning, you, you so you were so successful at it that people it was visible. It's not just that it consumed less memory. 
So the ISPs were happy, but people who upgraded to it right away saw a, a difference in the web pages themselves. Yeah, I mean, a good example was the .netnuke.com website itself, which you know is a fairly high traffic site because we've got our discussion forums on there. I think we do about six to seven million page views a month on that site, and it was. I mean, we we run on a very simple configuration for that site. We have one dedicated web server or app server, and one dedicated database server. Um, so it's basically two boxes that, that run that site. And, I mean, we were starting to see signs that, um, you know, that we were running into performance and scalability issues. Um, but after we installed the new DNN 4.4 release, uh, the performance was, was great again and got lots of feedback from the community saying that the site was highly responsive again. So that's what I mean by that it was, it was visible. And, of course, now that we've talked about a whole bunch of DNNs on one box, do you have many in the way of, of web farms, uh, one DNN site that spreads across multiple boxes? Yeah, so the um, the site that I mentioned, the uh, National Rugby League, is running in a web farm. Um, the Australian Rules Football League is going to be running in a fairly sizable web farm. Um, and in order to do that, I mean, a couple of years ago, there was an enhancement added to the .NET new framework to accommodate web farms. Um, the big issue with, with running in a web farm, especially when you're doing a lot of caching, is that you know the cache is stored in proc on, on the web server. And so if you're running multiple web servers and then a particular piece of content gets updated, the cache needs to be invalidated on all the web servers. Right. And the ASP.NET cache object in ASP.NET 2.0 you know, doesn't handle that type of a cache invalidation scenario. Um, so we had to build, you know, a custom solution to, to deal with that. But so as a result, the, .NET does work in a web farm scenario. And, and still uses caching. I mean, I've known more than one site that when they went to web farms, they just gave up on caching because of that problem. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, does, it does handle that. Plus, I mean, there is another use case scenario for .NET as well where you can have one application installed and then run many different websites or portals out of the one site. So you can have right. many different domain names all pointing to the same um, hosting account, but serving up completely different sites out of the same application. You know, it's ironic that uh, JetsonJ2EE.com is running on .NET Nuke. Actually, the, um, the former CTO of Datasource that owns that site is Joe Brinkman, and he's actually one of the co-founders of .NET New Corporation. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's double irony. <laughs> that is ironic. Uh, I noticed you used Redgate Ants uh, in the uh, performance tuning. Yeah, great product. Incredible so, product. Yeah, I think the, if the listeners haven't ever seen this thing, I'm a fan of it, but I'd love to get your take I on it. I am too. Uh, I've used it. Uh, it's great. Yeah, so, I mean, it allows you to profile a running um, ASP.NET application and provides you with a lot of metrics about where the bottlenecks are in your code. So Charles Nurse, who's the lead developer, one of the primary lead developers on the product, he leveraged the ANTS tool um, to profile the code and found a number of areas like where we were doing, I think the, the biggest issue was serialization. So serialization is a very expensive operation, and in a number of cases, we were doing serialization when we shouldn't have been, or we were doing serialization on every request where we could have potentially cached the, ser you know, the result. 
Right. And so one of the very first steps that was done in the performance optimization was was um, using ants to um, to improve bottlenecks in in the source code itself. What I loved about ants is sort of like the uh, application center test tool that that we all know and love from days of yore, except that you could hook it up to like a whole room full of PCs and say, here, go hit that website, everybody all at the same time, and just hammer on it and hammer yeah. and hammer and then find its weaknesses. And and you could also hook into the performance counters of the server itself, right? Mm-hmm. With ants? That's right. Yeah, we actually cool. use a number of Redgate's tools um, for different purposes in the project. I mean, the, the ANTH product is good for optimization, but we use SQL. Their SQL backup product is really great for for doing highly compressed backups of SQL databases. Hmm. Um, well, hmm. we, we, there's another Redgate product that we use for for um, developing. Uh, you can do differences. You can take two SQL databases and do a difference between them on schema and data and produce scripts, which, you know, bring one database um, create a script that can then be run to apl- to make the the databases completely in parallel. Right. So that's wow. SQL com- SQL Compare. That's that product. Yeah, they've got some beautiful products. Do you want to talk a little bit about? I get the sense that this issue around assembly management was probably the more one of the more contentious parts of getting four point four out the door. Specifically, the relationship with the GAC and and how to manage these uh, modules. Yep. So that was definitely a challenging area, and that we had to make some decisions there. Tell t- tell us from the beginning what what was the issue. Well, one of the things that we found out in in our performance testing was that the number of assemblies that you have in your local bin folder for your application seriously affects the startup time for your application. And you've probably seen this on some of your own sites where you have an ASP.NET website and it's been dormant for a period of time. Um, you know, it basically it's, it's, it's down. And then the first request that comes through to that site needs to start it up again. And ASP.NET goes through, you know, a bunch of processing in order to bring the site up. But one of the things it does, you know, is it loads every single assembly that's in the bin folder um, into the app domain. So the more assemblies right. and the larger those assemblies are that are in the bin, the longer it's going to take. Sometimes, I mean, I've seen sites where it takes, you know, two or three minutes for the site to come up on that first request. Right. I mean, you're also maximizing memory usage when you do that. You're loading everything. Right. So there's a, definitely a spike in, in the CPU as well. And that um, whatever gets loaded into the app domain stays in the app domain for as long as right. the application's loaded. Whether it's used or not. Right. So, I mean, if you have assemblies that are sitting in the bin that are optional assemblies that aren't often referenced by your application, they're they're consuming valuable resources. And that and that in the old design was just not optional. That's how it worked. Well, and, that, and that's the way it still works today. <laughs> so, one of the, I mean, there are a couple um, solutions that are out there to this problem. Um, some of them are not very well documented. So there, there are things that exist in the, in the .NET framework that aren't very well documented that you can do, but nobody seems to know a whole lot about them. Um, so if you're going, you know, if you're, if you're looking to implement some of those, you're sort of on your own to figure out whether or not they're going to actually work. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the decisions that we ultimately made was 
we had traditionally bundled all of our modules with the platform. And so when people installed .NET Nuke, they got all of the open source modules along with it. And each of those modules had at least one assembly. Most often they had two assemblies. So we would have, you know, in excess of, you know, 50 assemblies that were in the bin folder wow. for an application. And not everybody was using every one of those modules. I'm thinking nobody was using them all. <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, one of the changes that was made was to change the installation so that only a minimal number of, of modules are installed by default. And the rest are there, not in the bin folder, but just there in the application so that you can optionally install them and, and make them enabled. This is one of those great tactics for because of default configuration use. Right. Most DNN sites have got to have the default configuration because most people don't learn enough to do it any different. So make the default configuration lighter. You're getting an 80% return just like that. You're going to get a huge return on that. Yeah, so that was primarily that improved the startup scenario. So that first request starting up the application improved dramatically just by having not so many assemblies in the bin folder. Hey, uh, Sean, i got a question for you. What do you think of Ruby on Rails? I mean, I am a, I'm a fan of Ruby on Rails, um, but I think that it tends to get a bit too much um, press <laughs> over the last couple of years. I mean, you would say that, actually. <laughs> I, I, I love some of the um, fundamental values of Ruby on Rails project. Uh, I think 37 Signals has got some incredibly you know, innovative ideas when it comes to developing web applications and frameworks. Um, but, I mean, Rails as a framework, I, I, I don't see it as being, you know, a huge, um, a huge improvement for somebody in the ASP.NET world. Yeah, um, so it's, it's neat for a project that started from nothing, started with Ruby, but um, in terms of, you know, what's going on in ASP.NET, you think it's not superior. I mean, it's yeah. dynamic, right? So that's, that's clearly the what, what it's got going for it is the language. Right. And I mean, there are some benefits to dynamic languages. Um, well, and some disadvantages. I mean, mm. there's always both sides to, to that story. Right. I mean, for people that were used to the J2EE world with the, you know, where, where J2EE ended up with massive amounts of configuration files and, you know, pretty much have to be a rocket scientist to get a J2E application up and running. Right. <laughs> Ruby on Rails provided a really good path for those people to, to simplify things. Is there anything they did that you looked at that you said, wow, that's a great idea, we should do something like that? Well, there's, there's a ton of good ideas in, in Rails, um, particularly the, uh, the scaffolding Scaffolding, concepts. yeah, the data. Yeah, well, at least, and that's really great for prototyping, but not so great for production use, I believe. Um, so, I mean, you, you can scaffold an application very quickly and get it up and running, but in the long run, I don't think that, that the code that's produced, you know, would be enterprise-level scalable you know, you're code. You're the second person whose opinion I trust and value who has said that about, about Rails and about Ruby, too, which is that, you know, it's great for small applications, but it isn't going to scale. Right. Well, and I mean, I guess I haven't seen any sort of benchmarking or tests to to prove otherwise, which, so I mean, yeah. 
It's just an interesting that it's interesting that two people have said that. Right. I, don't I think really, the, I don't the other really part understand. of Ruby that I've seen that I think is much weaker than the ASP.NET um, solution is in terms of the user interface development. Yeah. I mean, when I look at how you develop a UI in Rails, it's um, it, it reminds me of classic ASP. Yeah. You know, you're, you're basically messing around with um, directly with the files. You know, you, they, you don't have any of the nice Visual Studio drag and drop controls, data binding. You know, all of that stuff we take for granted now in the .NET world. Hmm. It's, it's interesting, interesting to watch. I think it's good to have you know people out there for lack of a better cliche, pushing the envelope and, and you know, it, here's, here's some good ideas. And I think that uh, the bu- there's a lot of buzz in the community because of that, and it's definitely good for everybody in the long run. Microsoft is certainly looking at, you know, dynamic languages and Ruby. Of course, Link and Anders is, you know, totally in love with that stuff. So, yeah, it's all, it's all good, I think. Yeah, no, dynamic languages are interesting, and I, I know that Microsoft has a number of dynamic language-type projects that are underway. Um, I mean, dynamic languages, because they are dynamic and there is, you know, they're not pre-compiled, there are actually some performance benefits, you know, after the, after the first request to, right. to a resource, right? Once it's compiled the first time. It's similar to that problem we were just talking about with having so many assemblies in the bin, you wouldn't have that problem in a dynamic language because there really is no bin. Yeah, right. So. Well, uh, Sean, it's been good talking to you. Is there any last-minute words that you want to get out there or shout-outs or anything you want to say? I, I just want to say that I appreciate you guys having me on the show. I, it's been a while, but uh, I think that um, the, the the value that .NET Rocks brings to projects in terms of visibility, in terms of bringing information to the people, it is incredible. Oh, you're too kind. Well, thank you very much. And you've got a great product there, and it's certainly worthy of anything that our silly little show could do for you. So congratulations on that. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a toy boy Life is hard Pay my taxes